Welcome to the Reorg Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy, and feature discussions and issues affecting distressed debt, leveraged finance, direct lending, high yield bonds, high yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, Reorg's reporter Gaurav Sharma speaks with renowned bankruptcy guru and NYU professor Ed Altman and Queen's University finance professor Wei Wang about their research paper that sheds light on the significant rise of zombie companies worldwide. Ed and Wei talk at length about the various factors behind this phenomenon, such as economic growth, industry composition, lenient monetary policies, and the development of global corporate bond markets. And as always, we bring you our weekly summary of interesting developments in the restructuring world, as well as a preview of what's on tap for next week. On October 12th, Reorg's Thais Broberg and Jeff Kramer and Julian Ballon and Ben Sauer will be at this year's annual LSTA conference. For more information, please visit reorg.com events or contact marketing at reorg.com. We'd like to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience, so please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, October 9th. Welcome to the Reorg Prime Review. I'm Gaurav Sharma and I'm excited to bring you another episode on a topic that's been making waves worldwide, global zombie companies. We've got a research paper that talks at length about these companies and it's authored by the legendary Dr. Ed Altman, a bankruptcy expert who's been teaching at NYU Stern School of Business. And joining him is the brilliant Dr. Wei Wong, a distinguished professor of finance at the Smith School of Business of Queen's University. Welcome, Ed, and welcome, Wei. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you, Gaurav. So let's get started. So now in your recent paper, which will be out very soon, you describe the phenomena of zombie firms. Uh, can you explain what these zombie firms are and what did you discover about them? Well, zombie firms are um, kind of a vague definition of companies that are basically economically inefficient, insolvent, but continue to survive over relatively long periods of time. In other words, they should probably not survive, but for various reasons, they continue to operate and uh, have extremely important ramifications for the economies that they are part of. In, in addition, it is very important to point out that the definition of a zombie firm is oftentimes not very clear to researchers, practitioners, lawmakers, etc. So in our paper, we propose what's called a dual filter approach or two uh, measures that must be both in existence to define a zombie firm. First, which is more traditional definition of a zombie. It's a company that does not have sufficient cash flows to cover their interest payments over three years. And we have a, use a three-year moving average of the cash flow to interest ratio. If it's less than one, then they have indications, but in our opinion, not sufficient to call them zombies. And by the way, Gaurav, it may be of interest to our your listeners that upwards of 25 to 30% of listed companies in the United States today actually do not 
cover their interest payments with their cash flows, but continue to survive. And so that definition, while very relevant in terms of companies' health, is not sufficient. We then add a second filter, and we use the model that I built many years ago, but still in very uh, much use today and quite popular still. Uh, and we, we, we see this on all the software packages, Bloomberg, et cetera, the uh, Altman Z-score approach. And if the firm has a Z-score that puts them in a default zone or a highly distressed zone, again for three years, but continue to survive, we call that a second filter. And the combination of interest coverage less than one and Z-scores less than zero uh, will define for us a zombie firm. So I think that answers your question of how we differentiate these firms from financially uh, viable companies. And then we move on to measure uh, this um, phenomena of zombies for the 20 largest countries in the world over the last 30 years. So we have a long time series and we include uh, most of the most important countries in the world. I hope that's clear. Yeah, sure. So what do you think about the number of zombie firms in, globally and in the U.S.? Has they grown over time? Indeed. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, Wei would like to uh, weigh in on this. Yeah, thank you, Professor Altman. Uh, thank you, Gaurav. Uh, yes, so once we build our measure, uh, the first question we ask is how prevalent uh, the zombie firms are in the largest economies in the world. And uh, due to data availability, and uh, you know, it might require uh, a certain country to have a minimal number of firms uh, that we can study to include in the sample. So we uh, examined the 20 largest economies ranked by the World Bank as of the beginning of 2020 uh, to look at a pattern um, of zombie firms over time. So as Professor Altman mentioned, our sample includes all public traded firms uh, in its 20 largest economies from 1990 to 2021. Uh, and over time, some, some interesting pattern emerged. Uh, first is that we observed um, that in the early 1990s, if you look at the top 20 economies, the average fraction of zombie firms uh, regardless whether we use the ultimate Z-score or the ultimate Z-double price score uh, in combination with uh, interest coverage, uh, the fraction is about 1.5%. And uh, as of 19, 2019 and 2020, that fraction increased to over 7% in the 20 largest economies. Now, as Professor Altman also mentioned, uh, the advantage of dual filter approach is that uh, we measure not only the coverage ratio, but also the probability of default. So if you look at uh, interest coverage only, um, as the only as the filter to define zombie firms, that fraction stands at 20% in the 20 largest economies. And also importantly, um, 
the fraction of zombie firms and also the growth pattern in the 20 largest economies over the last 30 years is not so much driven by you know the IPOs. Um, you know, we we, we exclude uh, recently listed firms. The patterns still the same. Um, so, and also it's not primarily driven just by Z-score because uh, in addition to the Z-score, uh, interest coverage ratio does add information to uh, to our measurement. Now on the US, um, the patterns are very similar. Uh, the one thing I've got to notice that the average fraction of zombie firms in the US is actually larger uh, than that for uh, the other countries uh, as a whole. So as of 20, let's say 2019, 2020, um, I would say almost 10% of US public traded firms are defined as zombie firms according to our measure. Uh, but the ratio did decline uh, from 2020 to 2021. Um, so that, that reflects, uh, I would say, a few factors uh, at work. Uh, I think we'll defer that question on what explains uh, the changes or growth in zombie firms in the world economy and U.S. Uh, to, to, a, to a later question. Uh, great answer. So next question is about the economic and legal factors that create zombie firms. And is the size of the firm an indicator? Actually, it's a very important indicator. Again, among listed companies, uh, and I think it's also true for non-listed companies, but we have very good data on the listed ones, we find that the size of the company is very important, finding that small firms, and we particularly look at firms with less than 50 million in sales or greater than 50 million for larger firms, small firms have a much larger percentage of these firms as zombies than the larger companies. And actually it makes sense in many ways. First of all, and surprisingly you may find that countries like Australia and Canada have a very high percentage of their listed companies as zombies. And the reason is it's very easy in those countries and very common for small companies that are starting out with no earnings, very small revenues, if any, but having uh, the possibility of hitting it well, particularly in the commodities industry, like mining uh, in Australia, for example, and somewhat in Canada, that they have companies that exist for long periods of time with no earnings or cash flow, with the possibility, but in many cases it doesn't work out, of striking it rich. But overall, even in the United States and many other countries, the percentage of firms that are small adds to the zombie ratio of that country. Also, as you would expect, as part of your first part of that question, certainly the economic cycle impacts zombieism. So when you have large recessions like 2001, 2002, or 2008, 2009 in the US, you have a big spike in zombies. But it takes a while. It has, don't forget, we use a three-year moving average. It's not just one year. But a company that was on uh, showing some signs of distress prior to a recession, 
will more than likely qualify as a zombie by the end of the recession. And that's what we found over time. Still, a country like the United States, with many recessions, certainly contributes to the fact that we have more zombies. But there's a more important factor, Gaurav, if I can expand on it. And I know one of the issues you wanted to discuss is the growth of corporate debt in the system and how that may or may not in impact zombies in that country. It may be surprising to many of your listeners mm -hmm. that despite the fact that the United States has by far the most sophisticated and extensive and liquid capital markets, including the debt markets, despite the fact that we have such a large liquid, in many cases, debt market, we have more zombies. And I think the two go together. For example, the growth of the high yield bond market, the growth of the leveraged loan market over the last 30 years has been quite impressive. Going from in the United States, something like $30 billion outstanding of high yield bonds to today about 1.6 trillion and leveraged loans a similar amount. And if you add in, Gaurav, as you know, we talked about before in another podcast, the um, private debt sector, and particularly the non-bank lending market, the so-called shadow banking, you have a huge leveraged finance market in the U.S. And ironically, we believe significantly contributes toward zombies. Let me give you some statistics. For example, the average B-rated company, which is the dominant high-yield bond, has about 7-8% of the companies that qualify as zombies. And if you go down to triple Cs, which make up about 15% of the high-yield bond market, 28% of triple Cs qualify as zombies, and yet they are able to get financing. Our markets are quite permissive. Well, you might say that, but at the same time, we have the um, importance that investors are searching for yield. And that was particularly true when interest rates were so low, but it's still true today. And they're searching for yield and they take on risks that probably are not able to be financed in most other countries. So we find that the existence of highly sophisticated leveraged finance markets, while helping the economy grow on average, also contributes to zombies. And those zombies, as we'll probably talk about, sometimes end up in defaults and bankruptcies, which of course is a big cost to the system. So I think that answers the question about size. It also answers the question about the growth of um, corporate debt markets and their impact on zombies. At least I hope so. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. And that's a, that was a very comprehensive answer.
the next question is about the relationship between bankruptcy law reforms and the proportion of zombie firms in a country. So what do you think of that? Way you can answer that, uh, I think, uh, with more authority, because you've run some very sophisticated econometric studies on that issue. Uh, yes, uh, thanks for the question. Uh, I think when we start a study, uh, as Professor Alton mentioned, we're looking at the, the driving factors for the growth of zombie firms. But at the same time, we're looking for mechanisms that could help um, restructure or resolve zombie problems um, and uh, you know help reduce the zombie prevalence in the economy. Uh, we're looking at the literature, uh, the papers, academic papers published in the past, and uh, we're able to identify uh, a series of bankruptcy reforms uh, in a number of countries in a sample. And these prior studies document that these reforms aim to uh, modernize the bankruptcy law, and those are some of these reforms aim to strengthen credit rights specifically. So looking at our sample, uh, of countries, we identified eight countries that adopted major reforms to their bankruptcy law. That uh, that list includes Brazil, China, France, India, Italy, Japan, Spain, and the uh, United Kingdom. And then what we do here is we look at uh, which law reforms led to a stronger uh, credit rights. Um, Quite right, and uh, which uh, law reforms result to resulted to uh, result in uh, stronger uh, rights for debtors? And what we do is we run what we call the difference in difference analysis. That is, we look at the fraction of zombie firms in the old twenty economies before and after these reforms, and uh, investigate whether the fraction of zombie firms declines more in countries that. Uh, uh, reformed their bankruptcy law. What we found is that, um, yes, on average, the fraction of zombie firms declines by about 1.4 percentage point, which is pretty significant given the average, as you know, average fraction of zombie firms, as we mentioned, uh, you know, top 20 economies at about 5% over time, okay, over the last 30 years, even though it stands at over 7% um, just two years ago. Uh, so that's pretty significant. But now, more interesting result uh, emerges when we separated the law reforms into laws that strengthened data rights versus laws that strengthened the credit rights. We find that the reduction in the fraction of zombie firms in those economies uh, concentrate in countries that adopted stronger credit rights. I think results are quite uh, intuitive. As you strengthen credit rights, you provide uh, you know tools, special legal tools, uh, to allow creditors to force, I would say at least promote restructuring, um, and that, that could result in uh, the emergence restructuring of the companies or liquidation. So as a result, the fresh dummy firms declines. Now to support that hypothesis, whether the law reforms allowed creditors and even even better to seek um, the legal framework to structure. Uh, we look at um, the, the outcomes uh, around 
the reforms. So two outcomes we focused on uh, include duration of zombie firms and the death rate. Duration means how long a firm will stay as a zombie, uh, zombie status, from the year when we identify the firm as a zombie firm to the year that you know either the firm is liquidated or is acquired or recovered. That means no longer recognized as a zombie firm. Um, so that that's the duration. How many years, right? On average, we found about four, um, about four years, just over four years, the company will stay as a zombie until an outcome is reached. So look at the how long it stay a zombie, uh, in zombie status. We find that the duration uh, significantly declines after law reforms. So it shows that yes, the law reforms accelerated the exit uh, of zombie firms from our sample. The second part we call it death rate. Death rate really means they got delisted from public changes uh, or they filed for bankruptcy uh, or got liquidated and so on versus the standard outcome such as merger acquisition. You know, as we know, some of these firms, uh, any public firms in a given year, a, a fraction of those firms will be acquired so that's our reference kind of uh, percentage to compare that versus death rate in countries that adopted uh, reforms versus those that did not reform their bankruptcy law. We find that, yes, uh, after those countries that reform their bankruptcy code, the death rate also goes up significantly. So if you put a result together, I guess the conclusion is that the bankruptcy law reforms especially those that focus on strengthening credit rights, helped uh, the exit of zombie firms, uh, most likely through the form of restructuring and uh, liquidation. Yeah, so the basic conclusion is that, uh, and we have econometric uh, results that show this, uh, especially countries that did not have significant increases in zombies before. So you know, this is an econometric issue. So we're not uh, uh, biasing the results. We find that uh, there's a significant reduction in zombies when these bankruptcy reforms are incorporated over about a three year, four year period after the reforms. Uh, don't forget, we. Uh, our measures include a three-year moving average. So it takes a while for a firm to become a zombie, and it takes a while for them, usually, to either be merged or um, recover or um, uh, go bankrupt. As a matter of fact, Gaurav, if I could um, add to what um, Professor Wang uh, was just mentioned, oh. Uh, we did a study of what happened to zombie firms in the United States over the period of time of our time series study, th 30 years. And we find that about 15% uh, of zombies uh, go bankrupt. About a little over 40% are delisted. So together, we're talking about 55 to 60% of the firms essentially um, dying, as uh, Professor Wang mentioned, about 30%, a little over 30% are 
purchased in a merger and acquisition, of course, usually at relatively low prices. So it's like a bottom fishing uh, approach on the part of uh, uh, aggressive uh, M&A activity, private equity, uh, looking for firms that they could turn around, et cetera, and about 12% recover. In other words, uh, no longer have the dual filter approach indicating that they are zombies. And that's the United States. For those that are interested in reading our paper, you can find out more about what the results are uh, globally uh, as well. So I think that uh, presents a pretty clear picture of um, uh, what happens uh, to these firms. And as uh, was mentioned, the average duration for these events to take place is around four years after they first become a zombie firm. I hope that's all clear to you uh, yeah. and to our readers. Yeah, that's that's a great answer. Uh, that brings us to our to my last questions. Uh, how can the findings of your research paper inform policymakers in mitigating the issue of zombie firms and creating a favorable legal environment for enterprises? That's a that's a great question and a very difficult one. And the reason why it's difficult to answer uh, clearly, because we have very little experience with this is the fact that while the concept of zombie firms is becoming much more relevant and popular, especially as they increase over time uh, to, in the media and also among academics and scholars and you know, government institutions uh, like the World Bank or uh, IMF, OECD, in studying zombies, I don't recognize very much discussion about this by mm, reg uh, regulators, by um, uh, uh, lawmakers, uh, policymakers. There is some interest among central banks, and I think basically they come to the conclusion that zombies are important, but uh, they don't know what the right percentages to determine if that should impact their policies, like monetary policy, fiscal policy, and a part of regulators. So that's why it's not an easy answer. My guess is, and my hope is, and I'd like uh, Professor Wang to also express his, because he's thought about this issue as well. Uh, and by the way, we have a third co-author, uh, Rui Dai, D-A-I, from uh, Wharton in their WRDS um, data, and he's provided a lot of great empirical work for us as well. Um, so uh, what um, I think is quite important is that, for example, in the current situation, many of us expect a recession in the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, maybe sooner, uh, although the, the economy seems to be more resilient than most people thought. If we have a recession, there's no question there's going to be stress on companies. That normal in a recession, you have more defaults, bankruptcies, etc. Although that is also increasing quite a bit of late, even before we have a recession. The question is, in addition to 
um, uh, defaults and bankruptcies, which has a real cost to creditors, to uh, employment, et cetera. Uh, uh, we also have um, the so-called congestion effect. And the congestion effect is another of our major finding using econometric techniques. We measure the impact of zombies and, and the increase in zombies on industrial sectors and their own productivity, their own investment, their own employment, their own growth and sales. How do zombies impact those important macroeconomic factors? And the answer is, we find in our study that in sectors that have, industrial sectors that have large percentages and increasing percentages of zombies, we find that the non-zombie firms, the say more viable companies in that sector, also have lower productivity, lower employment, lower investment, and lower growth in sales. And so there is a real cost to the economy of zombies. And we think that legislators should consider that in their macro, fiscal, and monetary policy. I'm sure they consider doing things to correct um, uh, recessions, for example, by lowering interest rates or economic stimuli. But in addition to the recession, as a general matter, they should also be looking at zombies and trying to reduce the zombieism at the same time, which is consistent with uh, most of their objectives. So that's a long answer. Perhaps Professor Wang has some final comments on that. Uh, and then I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, we've tried to uh, answer some of the important parts of zombie, uh, corporate zombies in today's environment. Uh, yeah, thank you, Professor Altman. Uh, Professor Altman summarized, uh, I think, very well. I'll just uh, add, uh, I think, something uh, uh, something brief here. Uh, so first of all, Professor Altman mentioned uh, the congestion effect. Uh, I think that's what was observed. Um, you know, actually, if you look back in history, in Japan, what we call the last decade, um, that's when the study of zombie firms uh, actually emerged and became an important topic for countries like Japan. Right. Yes. And um, so I think traditionally, zombie firms were defined mostly uh, using subsidized bank credit. Um, so the question was, why should the banks subsidize a company to uh, maintain survival? Because such subsidized credit could create externalities, uh, just as Professor Altman mentioned, because now you have the credit uh, allocated to, you know, maybe we can call those inefficient firms, uh, so such that the the better firms maybe just do not have access to uh, enough credit to support their growth, and even for new firms, a new firm uh, formation as well. So, so that that's the that's the negative view on why uh, subsidized credit and uh, to, ma to maintain the survival of these firms is bad for the economy. But on the other hand, you know, policymakers must uh, 
also trade off, uh, you know, whether it's optimal to shut down these zombie firms because often their objective could be to maintain employment. As we have observed during the pandemic, the government uh, around the world uh, doesn't matter fiscal policy, monetary policy, they use all the weapons they have to really try to stimulate the economy and also to maintain employment. Um, so I think the question really is, um, you know, if we have strong mechanism to shut down these companies, uh, is it optimal from the government perspective, from the social welfare perspective? Um, and also, you know, um, sometimes we, we do observe in the data that uh, a fraction of these firms uh, did recover. Um, so there's a question is whether there should be tolerance of failure or not, because that would uh, also encourage entrepreneurship and innovation. Um, so so it, it's really, a, in my mind, a double-edged sword um, for, for, for government policymakers to consider. Okay, thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. Uh, thank you guys for making uh, making the time for us. I know you you guys have uh, courses to teach this fall, but I really appreciate that, that you could take out some time and to speak with us. And I'm sure we will we will talk to you guys very soon. Thank you very much, Gaurav. And thank, thank you, you uh, Riyog, uh, for your interest. And our paper is available from us individually, or I think you can get in touch with uh, uh, Riyog and Gaurav Sharma uh, to get a copy if you're interested. Yeah, thank, thank you, you And also, Professor Altima, uh, for having me join this podcast today. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. For in-court coverage this week, we take a look at Endo International, Malincourt, Celsius Network, Core Scientific, Genesis Care, and Windstream Holdings. Endo International is considering pivoting to a Chapter 11 plan for debt equitization away from its much-delayed Section 363 credit bidding sales strategy, especially if the company reaches a settlement with the last major sale opponents, the U.S. Department of Justice and Office of the U.S. Trustee, according to sources. The situation is fluid and no final decision has been made, sources say. The generic and specialty drug maker may end up continuing the sale process in its current form or incorporate a plan toggle. Judge John Dorsey took confirmation of the Malincrot debtor's prepackaged plan under advisement after hearing evidence and argument on objections from Suckling Creditor United Equities and shareholder Alta Advisors. Judge Dorsey said he'll issue an oral ruling next Tuesday on October 10th. Trial kicked off on confirmation of Celsius Network's plan of reorganization, which promises a new co-reorganization sponsored by Fahrenheit and backed by an alternative wind-down transaction with backup bidder Blockchain Recovery Investment Consortium. The plan has drawn objections from General Unsecured Creditor and loan claimant Pharos USD Fund SP, Koala 2 LLC, an entity affiliated with Celsius founder and former CEO Alex Mashinsky, securities class action plaintiffs, loan counterparty 168 Trading LTD, and the U.S. trustee. Separately, the settlement between Core Scientific and Celsius, one of Core's major prepetition hosting customers, was approved in both Chapter 11 proceedings. Under the settlement, Core will receive $14 million in cash. Celsius will purchase Core's Cedarvale facility and receive a perpetual non-exclusive license to use certain of Core's licensed materials. The settlement resolves approximately $312 million of Celsius claims against Core, but not Celsius's $54 million in secured convertible note claims, which are excluded from the deal. 
The U.S. Supreme Court denied Windstream Unsecured Notes Trustee U.S. Bank's petition for cert to review a 2022 opinion from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, which dismissed U.S. Bank's appeal of the Windstream Confirmation Order and Related Unity Settlement on equitable mootness grounds. This is the most recent example of the Supreme Court declining request to consider the viability of the equitable mootness doctrine, which allows appellate courts to reject appeals of bankruptcy confirmation orders because the plan has been substantially consummated. Rite Aid, Lumen, and Sunlight Financial round out this week's crop of near-term restructurings and refinancings. Rite Aid is preparing to file Chapter 11 on October 15th in New Jersey, Reorg has learned. New Jersey has become a go-to destination for retail Chapter 11 cases, including Bed Bath & Beyond and David's Bridal. New Jersey Bankruptcy Judge Michael Kaplan also endorsed the use of bankruptcy to address mass tort claims in the Johnson & Johnson LTL management case, which could be attractive to Rite Aid because the company could face billions, if not trillions, in asserted opioid claims. During a presentation on Tuesday, October 3rd, the Lumen Technologies CEO said the company is focused on a global holistic solution to its $20 billion debt burden and remains cautiously optimistic that a deal can be reached between the company and its various creditors, adding that it's got to deal with the entirety of the capital structure. Specifically, the company reiterated on an earlier assumption at an investor day conference that refinancing will occur at maturity at today's market rate over the next five years. He said that this will result in a higher coupon in the near term and higher interest burden, which he believes is manageable. Reorg recently initiated coverage of Sunlight Financial, a provider of financing to purchase and install residential solar panels, who is preparing to, for a potential Chapter 11 filing, as adverse market conditions and rising interest rates have put pressure on its liquidity and ability to comply with covenants. The Charlotte, North Carolina-based company has suffered from negative market conditions that resulted in lower loan volume, sales of loans at losses, and difficulties complying with loan cap and liquidity requirements imposed by Crossover Bank, according to its most recently quarterly report. Top red stories this week included court opinion review, a modest proposal to save bankruptcy without releases in Purdue, Senate Republicans against tort reform via bankruptcy, secret ballots in Hongs, a secret settlement in Tehum, and Richmond remains radioactive. 20 debtors file North America as primary slows. Investors ponder higher for longer. European primary market accelerates. China Evergrande's 11th hour reversal leaves real estate giant on the brink. Upcoming coupon tracker, a credit cloud search reveals 40 stressed credits with October coupons. Reorg spotlights Kano Health. Premium packaging to receive 325 million new money swap 1L loans into second out piece at 93.6%. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York with the week ahead. Welcome to the week ahead. My name is Kate Thomas. A longer schedule of this week's events can be found on the Reorg website under America's Week Ahead. For now, here are some highlights. A ruling on the Malincrot debtors' planned confirmation is expected on Tuesday. Judge John Dorsey took confirmation under advisement after last week's contested hearing. Second lien creditor United Equities and shareholder Alta Advisors objected to the plan's backstop premiums, payment of pre-petition RSA fees, and management incentive programs, calling these terms insider payments and evidence of bad faith that justify denying confirmation. If the plan is confirmed, first lien creditors would receive little more than 92% of the reorganized equity, and second lien creditors would receive the rest. Then on Wednesday, the Envision healthcare debtors have their joint confirmation hearing. Last week, both Envision and Amserg debtors filed amended plans that incorporate the global settlement reached with the official committee of unsecured creditors. Under the terms of the settlement, the committee and bondholders will support confirmation with the inclusion of a $41 million cash dis distribution funded by both debtors. Bondholders would also receive 1.5% of reorganized Envision parent common stock. 
The amended plans also include changes to the release and exculpation provisions. Also Wednesday, the Wesco and Cora Uptier Exchange challengers and participants head to court for a hearing on cross-summary judgment motions regarding the validity of the 2022 transaction. According to the participants, the 2022 transaction complied with the 2024-2026 secured and unsecured indentures. The 2024-2026 noteholders and unsecured noteholder Langer Mays counter that the transaction breached their sacred rights and the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. The 2024-2026 noteholders have also filed a motion to defer ruling on the summary judgment motions, citing issues of material fact that require a full opportunity to conduct discovery. That's it for now. For more on the week ahead, check out America's Week Ahead on the REORG website and have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the REORG Prime Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the REORG.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great week and see you next Monday.